Well, good morning and welcome to my Lakeside family and to any guests and visitors that we have joining us online uh, either today on the 21st of February or in the future. We are continuing in our series on Matthew and we're going to take this series through to just as Matthew does Easter and uh, then we will be done the entire Gospel of Matthew and it has been a fantastic journey so far. Um, it has been a little over a year with some breaks in there, not Matthew all the way through. Um, but we are now in Matthew chapter 22. And last week, if you'll remember, uh, Matthew 22 captures a day in which Jesus is sort of taking all comers. Uh, he is exerting his authority. He is speaking with authority. He is making his claim as Messiah and his enemies have kind of circled him and Jesus is confronting them one at a time as they come sort of throughout the day. And the Pharisees took their run at him with the Herodians last week, uh, challenging him on the tax paid to Caesar. And Jesus answered them to surprisingly pay Caesar what he is due but then challenge them that they should pay God what he is due. And that just as the coin bears the image of Caesar, they bear the image of God, and so does Jesus. And they should know what to do with Jesus the same way we know what to do with our money that bears our ruler's image on it. Give it to them as it is their due. So now the, later in the middle of the chapter, the Sadducees take their turn at being silenced. The Sadducees, as you will remember, uh, are sort of the progressive, rationalist, materialist. They don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in miracles. Religion to them is just a moral duty. And for them, the only scriptures that they counted were the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. And so if Moses didn't say it, they really had little use for it. And they try to tap Jesus with a silly question about seven brothers who all have died and the wife is passed from brother to brother. And uh, when she finally gets to heaven, you know, whose wife will she be? And they think they have such a funny, clever argument here. But Jesus answers them again easily, just as he did with the question of the Herodians. And then he tacks on a lesson for them at the end about the revelation and about how they don't understand what Moses said, even though they claim Moses as their great teacher. And now after that, after the Sadducees take a run at it, the Pharisees come back for another shot at Jesus. When they see the silencing of the Sadducees, they come up with another strategy. And they're probably thinking now, they, he defeated our students when we sent our disciples. He's just schooled the Sadducees. This time, it's time to bring out the lawyer. It's like a showdown in the movie, right? All the lesser enemies have been beat and then the big bad guy comes out at the end. And so the Pharisees roll out the lawyer. And that's where we are today in Matthew 22, 34 and on. As Jesus is challenged by this lawyer, this scribe, this um, Pharisee who knows the law better than anyone else, supposedly. Let's just pray before we look into God's word and see how Jesus teaches them and can teach us about the greatest commandment in scripture. Father God, thank you for your word to us in Matthew. We pray that as it lands on us, that we will learn the lessons that we need to from it. Uh, Father, this is a lesson about love and uh, that's the lesson we need to learn. And so help us to examine our own lives and our own actions and our own words 
um, over the course of our life and even just in recent weeks or months or even with just specific people and consider how we are following this great commandment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew twenty-two thirty-four begins this way. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so we see here that the lawyer asked him this question to test him. This was a test. I remember when I was in seminary, the professors would ask us questions specifically to test us. And the kinds of questions that they would ask were deliberately putting the tensions of the Bible against each other. Uh, Questions like... um, If God turns his back on Jesus on the cross and sin cannot enter the Trinity, but Jesus becomes sin for us, but the Trinity is immutable and God is immutable and Jesus can't stop being God, how does sin, how does Jesus become sin? Jesus remained part of the Trinity and still becomes sin for us. Okay, that's probably one of the heavier ones. Um... And so we would get asked questions like this that would uh, cause us to think hard about the Scripture and really challenge us to think deeply about what it is that Scripture is saying. And the the Pharisees had a habit that uh, they did this to each other all the time. They thrived on debating each other about the law. And I want you right now to just stop thinking about that question that I just posed, okay? Forget about it. It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with this message, and you don't need to resolve it, okay? Um, So just stop that. Focus back here on me, because I just got the sense there that I might have just taken you down a rabbit trail. But the Pharisees did this all the time, okay? This is, focus on this. This is the Pharisees' habit. They would ask these questions where just the language that they use would pose sort of difficult challenges that may test their ability to think, but doesn't test the nature of God or the law. But the, the Pharisees did this all the time, and they thrived on debating each other about the law, of challenging each other about what they thought were deeper levels of devotion. What are the best ways to keep the laws? How do you prioritize them? Which law comes first? What is it best to follow? Because these Pharisees wanted to be great at applying the law to their lives. And so then here we have a Pharisee who is also a lawyer. This guy's got to be so much fun at parties, right? And so he brings out a question, the biggest question. The question no one was certain they had an answer to. The Pharisees, you have to remember, had compiled over 600 laws out of the Old Testament. And even Pharisees are thinking, 613 laws, there has to be a way to distill it down. There has to be a way to trim the structure of the law. It's sort of from the the tree, the, the leaves and the twigs on the outside to the branches and then down to the trunk. What is the trunk of the law that all the branches and the twigs and the leaves hang on in those 613 commandments and statutes in the Torah? What's the trunk? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And so they asked Jesus, okay, smart guy, what is the greatest commandment? Now, in every other case, Jesus has taken the questions that have been thrown at him by his enemies and answered something unexpected. 
but then more accurately to the motive of their hearts because they kept asking silly questions about paying taxes and about husbands and wives in heaven. But in this case, Jesus, if he could be, might actually be surprised that they finally asked a good question. So Jesus answers their question very simply and very clearly. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is a great answer. This comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. And what's interesting is that Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 are the first verses memorized by children uh, of Israel literally for centuries at this point. It, the, these verses are what is called the Shema, and that gets its name from the first word, Hero Israel, Shema. And every child learns this as their first prayer. Every adult would repeat it daily. Sometimes they would repeat it three times a day at morning, noon, and night. It's a verse that you would find in their phylacteries that are bound to their wrists. You would find this verse written on their doorposts. This is the core verse. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus changes might here to mind to emphasize that it is a strength of conviction, not a physical strength of doing mighty works of the law, but a convicting strength of trust and faith in God. And Jesus distills the law down and he describes the trunk of the law. He says everything follows from this. Our obedience to law derives from our love of God. Our obedience is not a set of rules or demands imposed on us, but our obedience comes from seeking after and desiring what is good and satisfying in the person of God and in the person of Jesus. What is good and satisfying as the gift of a loving God. And so to the degree that we know God and love God, then we will cherish his law, quote unquote, which is to seek out and do it out of delight rather than duty. And that law that he gives us is the delight of love. Just go and read Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, and see the delight the law is meant to be. All of Psalm 119 is written to talk about the joy and the delight of the law. So this is not necessarily something new that Jesus is saying here. We have to understand this. This is not a change from what God intended. This is not a change from how people who followed God rightly in the Old Testament viewed his law. God and God's law viewed rightly has always been about treasuring and cherishing and loving God and his law. And so Jesus is just summarizing it here. As many of the Pharisees for centuries had summarized it in the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So Jesus basically is saying to the Pharisees when they bring this lawyer to them, to him, he says, don't outsmart yourself with all this law keeping stuff. You guys are working really hard with your 613 itemized laws, you know, trying to put on a great show for how you love God supposedly by keeping his law, but you've made it way too complicated. You've outsmarted yourself. You've missed the core. You've missed the trunk of the tree. You already know the answer to this question. You've known the answer since the time you could talk. Everything you need to know about the law you learned in kindergarten. It's the most famous verse you have, and yet you brilliant Pharisees and lawyers don't know that it is the greatest commandment. 
It's as if someone asked a Christian today what the most important truth of the New Testament was, and somehow they couldn't come up with John 3.16. That somehow a Christian couldn't come up with the verse that distills the gospel down to its purest form. God so loved the world that he sent his son, and whoever believes in him will not perish, but inherit everlasting life. If a Christian started pointing at Romans 1 or Galatians 6 or even Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes and all of the great teaching of Jesus in the Beatitudes, they would be missing the point, right? It's John 3.16. We all know it. Everybody knows it. And that's what Jesus is kind of saying to the, <laughs> to the Pharisees here. Um, it's Deuteronomy 6.5. You know that. I mean, he didn't say Deuteronomy 6.5 because they didn't have chapters and verses, but <laughs> he said it's the Shema. You know the Shema, and you know this is the greatest commandment. It, Why don't you understand this? So nothing in the law makes sense, Jesus says, and you will have no ability to follow the law, all you Pharisees that are trying, unless it's based on the transforming love of God. Now, they didn't ask for a second commandment. So here Jesus goes back to his business again of giving them more than they bargained for when they asked him a question. You asked me a question you should already know the answer to again, and I've given you the answer Again, I'll answer that, but what you need is an application of it. So Jesus says, so let me just tack on a little bit here. Let me give you part two. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. See, you Pharisees that are so hung up on how you're supposed to act out the law, let me tell you, let me tell you the whole duty of the law that God has given you. Love people as much as you love yourself. Now, it's interesting this. I find that the first commandment comes from literally the most popular verse in the Old Testament in their time. But the second commandment that Jesus pulls is perhaps from one of the most obscure places. It's only half a verse even. Where does Jesus get this law to love others as yourself? It's in Leviticus 19.18. And I know I lost you already at Leviticus, but just bear with me. It's not even in the kind of fun parts of Leviticus, if there are any. It's in the part of Leviticus that is just a grab bag of random commandments that you would think anyone who had any semblance of the love of God would already know. They're sometimes called the sundry commandments. So, for instance, in this section of Leviticus, we find such gems as verse 14, You shall not curse a deaf man or place a stumbling block before the blind. Really, God needs to tell us not to walk around behind deaf people insulting them or that tripping blind people is cruel. We need an explanation that that would be unloving behavior. And the answer is, yes, we do. That's the point. Because invariably, if you study human nature at all, especially, say, teenagers, you see exactly that sort of behavior. We really are that dumb and cruel that God had to say, don't mock people who are deaf and don't trip people who are lame or blind. And if you're a parent, you totally understand this. We have to say things to our children that just seem insane sometimes, like, no, you should not put a thumbtack up your brother's nose. No one should even desire to put a thumbtack up anyone's nose. But for some families, even though it's not the most weighty issue of the law, it may be the most pressing issue of the law. 
And here we are, even ourselves, understanding what God has to deal with because we have to make these family laws for our children, cardinal rules like don't stick things up your nose or up anyone's nose. In fact, don't stick anything anywhere that resembles a nose. Don't put anything in your body that isn't food. And specifically, let me clarify, the food that your parents serve you at designated dinner times. I mean, this is how specific we have to get with the human race, with our rules, don't we? And God knows, literally, he knows. God had to write the first exasperated parent list, and he wrote it for us. Don't walk around insulting deaf people, and don't trip blind people. (laughs) It just seems obvious, but apparently it isn't. So he says, don't lie, don't cheat, don't take advantage of people, don't treat people badly. The Pharisees, as I said, found 613 of these commandments. Why are all these laws important? What do they boil down to? What do all these laws that we come up with boil down to, whether it's, you know, cursing deaf people, tripping blind people, cheating, lying, sticking thumbtacks, not up people's noses? What do all these laws boil down to? Leviticus 19.18 says, because it's loving. Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. And everyone is our neighbor. So Jesus says there's a first and greatest commandment. I'll answer that. And everyone listening to his first answer, love the Lord your God with all your strength, soul, and mind heart and mind, would say, aha, that makes sense. That's the Shema. That's a good answer, Jesus. But then he goes on to say there's a second, and it's just as important, love your neighbor as yourself. And it would be like, wait, what? And like the sound of rustling pages, where is that command? It's not Deuteronomy 6.6. It's not verse 7. It's not verse 8. It's not verse 9. What? Where is it? Leviticus 19. What? What is this thing that Jesus is talking about? (laughs) Right? He goes to the most obscure part, and he says, this is the second most important. And it's funny in my mind, because irony kind of jumps out at me quite often, that Jesus basically says, okay, lawyer, okay, Pharisee lawyer, you want to test me on the law? First of all, how did you not see that the greatest commandment was the most obvious one? And secondly, since you're such an amazing lawyer, how did you overlook Leviticus 19.18? I mean, did you not read the whole law? Did you not see that? You see, Pharisees thought they were really good God lovers. They thought they were the most God-loving, zealous people in Israel because they kept the law so well, making them the most recognized lovers of God. But in their zeal for the law, they completely missed what keeping the law really looks like. They were terrible neighbor lovers. In fact, Pharisees were especially guilty of using the law not to love people, but to despise them. You remember the little episode from Matthew 15? A few months ago now, we covered this. Matthew 15, 3 to 6, Jesus is walking along with his disciples. And the Pharisees challenge him and it says, your disciples aren't even washing their hands, you know, the ritual washing that they're supposed to do before they feast. You know, why do you break the commandment of God? And Jesus asked them, why do you break the commandments of God? God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you go around these days saying that 
you know, mom and dad can't have access to my house, mom and dad can't have access to my resources because I've declared them Corbin. I have set them aside for God and so therefore you can't have them, mom and dad. I'm sorry that you need a place to stay. I'm sorry that you need resources, but you know, we've dedicated our things to the temple. They're Corbin, you can't have them. You're not honoring your father and your mother. You're actually using the law to despise them. You've made void the word of God. The Pharisees' law-keeping was accomplishing the opposite of his intent. Jesus says, no, if you claim to love God, I'll see it in you loving not just your father and mother, but your neighbor. And even your enemies, like Samaritans, are your neighbor. Because, of course, you know the Pharisees start looking for loopholes, right? Well, who is my neighbor? Jesus deals with that another time. So Jesus has done it again. He's given his testers back a dose of teaching they did not expect and don't want to hear. Now, as we often have with Jesus' teaching so far in this series, let's just see whether the disciples and his followers got the teaching. The Pharisees might not have got it. The Sadducees might not have got it. The Herodians might not have got it. But let's see whether Jesus' followers got it. And if we look ahead in the New Testament, we will find the greatest lesson Jesus ever taught. And it is found there in all of his followers. And I have to credit crossing paths with Bruxy Cavey for a completely unrelated reason this week. Somebody came to me and said, can you look at this video? I need to find out, you know, whether what he's saying is okay, blah, 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 blah. And so I, I looked at it and just by pure chance, he was preaching on the same verse. And so he actually found these verses for me, which I would have had to look up. So thanks, Bruxy, for finding these verses for me. Now I'm going to um, uh, not interpret them differently. I'm going to apply them a little bit differently than he did, uh, but at least I didn't have to look them up. So thanks, Bruxy, for that. Um, if we look ahead in the New Testament, we see that John learned this lesson. In 1 John 4.21, says, And his commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you love God, you have to love your brother. You can't say that we... John says you can't say that you love God unless you love others. We could go to Peter and see that Peter got it in 1 Peter 4.8. He says, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This is the thing that you set above everything else. You love others earnestly. Or we could look at James, the brother of Jesus. He got the lesson as well. James 2.8 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, then you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you are doing well. The royal law, the law above all other laws, love others. John got it. Peter got it. James got it. Paul got it. The former Pharisee applied it directly to freedom from the law again. He says in Galatians 13, 14, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It almost sounds here like Paul is overextending what Jesus actually said. Jesus said the first commandment was loving God and the second was loving neighbors. Paul says here the whole law hangs just on loving neighbors. But context is always important. John, Peter, James, Paul are all writing in the context of relationship to other Christians. Paul especially is writing in the context of fulfilling the duty of the law towards each other, not in relationship to God. So they're writing is to people whose love of God is already established. 
But what all four of them are emphasizing in their letters to these early churches and these early Christians is how their love of God is expressed in love to others. And in terms of our relationships to other people horizontally, our love of God is always expressed first and foremost, above all, in love to others. In fact, although this moment of Jesus' teaching is certainly in their mind here in Matthew, there's actually another more personal moment of teaching from Jesus. Peter and John are certainly referring to this when Jesus himself gave only the second command. In John 13, 34, he has his disciples gathered together with him. And he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Jesus didn't have to tell his disciples to love God. He knows that they do. He does need to teach them. And he does need to teach us that loving God requires we love each other. That's the bit we struggle with. That's what the Pharisees struggle with. That's what the disciples were struggling with as they got into their fights and scraps. That's what the early church struggled with, that Peter and James and John and Paul had to continually teach them this lesson again and again and again, above all, love one another, because loving God requires our love for our brothers and sisters, even our enemies. We are not so far away from the Pharisees. We can sing at church with our hands in the air. We can feel deeply moved by the love and wisdom of God. We can have our hearts set on God and feel great affection and thankfulness to God. We can throw ourselves fully into our prayer time with him and glory at all of his goodness. And then just hours later, rip into somebody who has slighted us or wronged us. We can tear people down just hours after we declare our love of God. And Jesus says, actually, no, you can't. You're not loving God when you don't love others the same as yourself. That's why Jesus gives this one command to his disciples and the apostles pass that one command on to those who would see the love of God expressed in our love for others. So if we go back to what Jesus said originally to the Pharisees here in Matthew 22, I think we can see how it works, how this love of God comes first and then expresses itself in the love of others. And maybe it's helpful as we think of loving God and loving others to remember that old Christian object lesson of the cross. The cross is a vertical post and a horizontal beam. And the Christian life can be thought of quite simply as our relationship vertically with God and how our vertical relationship with God works out horizontally in our relationship with others. And so love God, love others. That's not a biblical object lesson. That's a human one, but I think it's helpful still. Jesus is essentially teaching this horizontal relationships that hang and are only able to bear the weight of the post that upholds them. Or to state it the other way around, we can only manage the load of our horizontal relationships with people rightly and lovingly if our vertical relationship with God is strong. As the vertical relationship weakens, to that degree weakens our ability to carry the load of loving our horizontal relationships. Even in the Ten Commandments can be summarized this way, and in some sense it's what Jesus has done. 
The first four of the Ten Commandments any reader might notice immediately are all God-directed. The next six of the Ten Commandments are aimed horizontally at our neighbors. Exodus 23 to 17, I will paraphrase. The first four are this, you will have no other gods before me. You will not make idols and bow down to them. You will not swear by God's name in vain. You will remember the day of rest or God's Sabbath and keep it holy. Those, those first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are all vertical. They're all pointed towards God. And Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Get the vertical right. Then the next six commandments are honor your father and your mother. Don't murder. Don't sleep around with anyone but your wife. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet other people's stuff, not their house or their wife or their car or anything. All those six commandments afterwards are all about how do we relate to other people. And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. The pattern we're seeing repeated here is made evidence in his answer to the lawyer. Love God. And without that love vertically coming first to our maker, to our creator, to our holy and righteous God, without beginning in the love of God, the loving of others horizontally in our relationships will not work. Without the first four commandments, the other six, let alone the other 613, will never happen. Or as Paul would have it, if you have the love of God expressed in your love for others, you will fulfill the 613 commandments of the law perfectly. You will fulfill the law of Christ if you do all things in love. Now it's interesting to notice a little extra on the end of this account recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark. After Jesus gives him his answer, the lawyer responds, and Mark, Mark has it recorded, Matthew doesn't. Says in the scribe or the lawyer said to him, you're right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offering and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus, if he allowed himself to be, might be a little surprised here because a light bulb just lit up over this lawyer's head. The lawyer came to test Jesus, to challenge him, to try to trip him up. But he hears Jesus' answer and he just almost accidentally stumbles close to the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you are really close to the kingdom because I think you're finally starting to understand what I'm teaching you. And if, if he repents of his old selfish law-keeping and begins to walk in this new command of love, then he would enter the kingdom. And Jesus says, you are so close to the kingdom, if you understand what I'm saying here about cherishing and treasuring God and loving him, and the outflow of that love of God is loving others. You are really close. You just need to repent and turn and walk in the glory and the knowledge and the light of that knowledge. So what about us? How are we doing so far in this teaching? We claim to love God. We have the spirit of Christ. How is our neighbor love going then? Do we love others the way we love ourselves? What does Jesus mean by that? I think it means a lot of things as Paul and James and John and Peter have outlined many different instances of how we are to be kind to one another, how we are to cherish one another, how we are to love one another, how we are to care for one another. 
I think it just means this when we talk about loving others as ourselves. I think it means things like this very practically. I love myself enough that when I'm hungry, I make sure I'm fed and I make sure my fridge is full. So do I love my neighbor enough to make sure that their fridge is full and that when they're hungry, they are fed? I love myself to work diligently to ensure that I have shelter and heat when it's cold. Do we love our neighbor in a way that we work hard to make sure that they have shelter and heat when it's cold? Do we love our neighbor that way? Do we work hard to make sure they have what they need? I love myself enough to care for my own health and for the well-being of my family. Do I love my neighbor to care for their health and the well-being of their families and their children? I make sure I suffer no lack. Do I make sure my neighbor does not suffer from lack? In relationships, I forgive myself for many failings. Do I forgive my neighbor for their failings? There are many ways that we love ourselves. Can we take those ways that we love ourselves and apply them equally to others? Only in as much as we also nurture our love for God is this possible over the long haul. We can work up some ambition, some willpower to love others, to be selfless for a while, but we will not be characterized by heartfelt, long-term generosity, selflessness, graciousness, patience, long-suffering, generosity, not over the long haul, unless we are cherishing and nurturing our love for God. As that vertical post, as our love of God increases and increases and increasing, as that vertical relationship gets stronger and stronger and stronger, then the cross beam of our horizontal relationships is able to carry so much more weight. We are able to love more people more deeply because our love of God is strong. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's the lessons the Pharisees need to learn. Love others as much as you claim to love God. And in fact, deepen your love of God so that you know how and are able to love others as yourself. The command of God is so easy and difficult at the same time. We have a God that comes along and says, you must listen to me. I have a command for you. And you know what I demand of you? I demand that you all love each other. That's my big demand. Just care for each other. Just love each other. Encourage one another. Support one another. Feed one another. Clothe one another. Heal one another. Lift each other up. Teach one another. Encourage and endorse one another. All of these things, God says, just love one another. That's my big demand on you. Such a cruel God to come along to his children and say, love one another. And I'll help you. Love me and I'll show you how. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are such a good God. (laughs) There's so many gods of this world that demand a lot of things, you know sacrifices, whatever, throw things into a volcano or, you know, butcher this thing or, you know, serve this way, do all these things, follow these rules. And you come along and you say, I'm your real God. You know what I want? I want you to love one another. 
And if you love one another, you'll fulfill all those other laws. You know, I'm sorry I'm so mean telling you not to lie and cheat and steal and kill one another. Yeah, terrible. Jesus just says, just love one another. And the apostles pick up on it and they say, above all, just love one another. That's how you fulfill the law of Christ. Father, we look at our lives and we see all the ways in which we are not as loving as we should be. We hold on to money. Maybe we don't steal, but we have money that we hold on to that we could have given and used. You know, maybe we don't, uh, you know, trip up blind people. But we also maybe don't help people who need help as much as we should. And so, Lord, we have all room to grow in loving. Our fridges are full for the most part. Our houses are warm for the most part. We take care of our kids and see them healthy and educated for the most part. We need to have that same compassion and passion for the neighbors around us, and not just for the neighbors around us, for the world. Father, you call us to love, the kind of love that we can't even comprehend being able to accomplish, except that you give us that love as we love you. Father, deepen our love for you and deepen our love for others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.